Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 21 and 22 of Emily of New Moon by L. M. Montgomery. In the last chapter, Emily became friends once again with Lofty John. In tonight's story, Emily finally makes the decision to cut herself a bang. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 21 Romantic but not comfortable A certain thing happened at New Moon because Teddy Kent paid Isla Burnley a compliment one day and Emily Starr didn't altogether like it. Empires have been overturned for the same reason. Teddy was skating on Blair Water and taking Isla and Emily out in turns for slides. Neither Isla nor Emily had skates. Nobody was sufficiently interested in Isla to buy skates for her, and as for Emily, Aunt Elizabeth did not approve of a girl skating. New Moon Girls had never skated. Aunt Laura had a revolutionary idea that skating would be good exercise for Emily and would, moreover, prevent her from wearing out the soles of her boots sliding. But neither of these arguments was sufficient to convince Aunt Elizabeth. In spite of the thrifty streak that came to her from the Burnleys, the latter, however, caused her to issue an edict that Emily was not to slide. Emily took this very hardly. She moped about in a woe-begotten fashion, and she wrote to her father, 
I hate Aunt Elizabeth. She is so unjust. She never plays fair. But one day, Dr. Burnley stuck his head in at the door of the New Moon kitchen and said gruffly, What's this I hear about you not letting Emily slide, Elizabeth? She wears out the soles of her boots, said Elizabeth. Boots be. The doctor remembered that ladies were present just in time. Let the creature slide all she wants to. She ought to be in the open air all the time. She ought. The doctor stared at Elizabeth ferociously. She ought to sleep out of doors. Elizabeth trembled lest the doctor should go on to insist on this unheard-of proceeding. She knew he had absurd ideas about the proper treatment of consumptives and those who might become such. She was glad to appease him by letting Emily stay out of doors in daytime and do what seemed good to her. If only he would say no more about staying out all night, too. He is much more concerned about Emily than he is about his own child, she said bitterly to Laura. Isla is too healthy, said Aunt Laura with a smile. If she were a delicate child, Alan might forgive her for, for being her mother's daughter. Shush, said Aunt Elizabeth, but she shushed too late. Emily, coming into the kitchen, had heard Aunt Laura and puzzled over what she had said all day in school. Why had Isla to be forgiven for being her mother's daughter? Everybody was her mother's daughter, wasn't she? Wherein did the crime consist? Emily worried over it so much that she was inattentive to her lessons, and Miss Brownell raked her fore and aft with sarcasm. It is time we got back to Blairwater, where Teddy was just bringing Emily in from a glorious spin, clear round the great circle of ice. Isla was waiting for her turn on the bank. Her golden cloud of hair erlowed her face and fell into a shimmering wave over her forehead under the faded little red tam she wore. Isla's clothes were already faded. The stinging kiss of the wind had crimsoned her cheeks and her eyes were glowing like amber pools with fire in their hearts. Teddy's artistic perception saw her beauty and rejoiced in it. Isn't Isla handsome, he said. Emily was not jealous. It never hurt her to hear Isla praised. But somehow, she did not like this. Teddy was looking at Isla altogether too admiringly. It was all Emily believed, due to that shimmering fringe on Isla's white brow. If I had a bang, 
Teddy might think that I were handsome, she thought resentfully. Of course, black hair isn't as pretty as gold, but my forehead is too high. Everybody says so, and I did look nice in Teddy's picture because he drew some curls over it. The matter rankled. Emily thought of it as she went home over the sheen of the crusted snowfield slanting to the light of the winter sunset, and she could not eat her supper because she did not have a bang. All her long hidden yearning for a bang seemed to come to a head at once. She knew there was no use in coaxing Aunt Elizabeth for one, but when she was getting ready for bed that night, she stood on a chair so that she could see Emily in the glass, then lifted the curling ends of her long braid and laid them over her forehead. The effect, in Emily's eyes at least, was very alluring. She suddenly thought, what if she cut a bang herself? It would take only a minute. And once done, what could Aunt Elizabeth do? She would be very angry and doubtless inflict some kind of punishment. But the bang would be there, at least until it grew out long. Emily, her lips set, went for the scissors. She unbraided her hair and parted the front tresses. Snip, snip went the scissors. Glistening locks fell at her feet. In a minute, Emily had her long-desired bang. Straight across her brows fell the lustrous, softly curving fringe. It changed the whole character of her face. It made it arch, provocative, elusive. For one brief moment, Emily gazed at her reflection in triumph. And then, sheer terror seized her. Oh, what had she done? How angry would Aunt Elizabeth be? Conscience suddenly awoke and added its pang also. She had been wicked. It was wicked to cut a bang when Aunt Elizabeth had forbidden it. Aunt Elizabeth had given her a home at New Moon. Hadn't Rhoda Stewart that very day in school twitted her again with living on charity? And she was repaying her by disobedience and ingratitude. A star should not have done that. In a panic of fear and remorse, Emily snatched the scissors and cut the bang off, cut it close against her hairline. Worse and worse, Emily beheld the result in dismay, and one could see that a bang had been cut, so Aunt Elizabeth's anger was still to face and she had made a terrible fright of herself. Emily burst into tears, snatched up the fallen locks, 
and crammed them into the waste basket, blew out her candle and sprang into bed, just as Aunt Elizabeth came in. Emily burrowed her face downward in the pillow and pretended to be asleep. She was afraid that Aunt Elizabeth would ask her some questions and insist on her looking up while she answered them. That was a Murray tradition. You looked people in the face when you spoke to them. But Aunt Elizabeth undressed in silence and came to bed. The room was in darkness, thick darkness. Emily sighed and turned over. There was a hot gin jar in the bed, she knew, and her feet were cold. But she did not think she ought to have the privilege of the gin jar. She was too wicked, too ungrateful. Do stop squirming, said Aunt Elizabeth. Emily squirmed no more, physically at least. Mentally, she continued to squirm. She could not sleep, her feet or her conscience or both, kept her awake, and fear also. She dreaded the morning. Aunt Elizabeth would see then what had happened. If it were only over, if the revelation were only over, Emily forgot and squirmed. What makes you so restless tonight? demanded Aunt Elizabeth in high displeasure. Are you taking a cold? No, ma'am. Then go to sleep. I can't bear such wriggling. One might as well have an eel in bed. Ow! Aunt Elizabeth, in squirming a bit herself, had put her own foot against Emily's icy ones. Goodness, child, your feet are like snow. Here. Put them on the ginger. Aunt Elizabeth pushed the ginger over against Emily's feet. How lovely and warm and comforting it was. Emily worked her toes against it like a cat, but she suddenly knew she could not wait for morning. Aunt Elizabeth, I've got something to confess. Aunt Elizabeth was tired and sleepy and did not want confessions just then. In no very gracious tone, she said, What have you been doing? I, I cut a bang, Aunt Elizabeth. A bang? Aunt Elizabeth sat up in bed. But I cut it off again, cried Emily hurriedly. Right off, close to my head. Aunt Elizabeth got out of bed, lit a candle and looked Emily over. Well, you have made a sight of yourself, she said grimly. I never saw anyone as ugly as you are this minute, and you have behaved in a most underhanded fashion. 
This was one of the times Emily felt compelled to agree with Aunt Elizabeth. I'm sorry, she said, lifting pleading eyes. You will eat your supper in the pantry for a week, said Aunt Elizabeth, and you will not go to Uncle Oliver's next week when I go. I had promised to take you, but I shall take no one who looks as you do anywhere with me. This was hard. Emily had looked forward to that visit to Uncle Oliver's, but on the whole she was relieved. The worst was over and her feet were getting warm, but there was one thing yet. She might as well unburden her heart completely while she was at it. There's another thing I feel I ought to tell you. Aunt Elizabeth got into bed again with a grunt. Emily took it for permission. Aunt Elizabeth, you remember that book I found in Dr. Burnley's bookcase and brought home and asked you if I could read it. It was called The History of Henry Esmond. You looked at it and said you had no objections to me reading history. So I read it. But Aunt Elizabeth, it wasn't history. It was a novel. And I knew it when I brought it home. You know that I have forbidden you to read novels, Emily Starr. They are wicked books and have ruined many souls. It was very dull, pleaded Emily as if dullness and wickedness were quite incompatible, and it made me feel unhappy. Everybody seemed to be in love with the wrong person. I have made up my mind, Aunt Elizabeth, that I will never fall in love. It makes too much trouble. Don't talk of things you can't understand, and that are not fit for children to think about. This is the result of reading novels. I shall tell Dr. Burnley to lock his bookcase up. Oh, don't do that, Aunt Elizabeth, exclaimed Emily. There are no more novels in it, but I'm reading such an interesting book over there. It tells everything about what's inside of you. I've got as far along as the liver and its diseases. The pictures are so interesting. Please let me finish it. This was worse than novels. Aunt Elizabeth was truly horrified. Things that were inside of you were not to be read about. Have you no shame, Emily Starr? If you have not, I am ashamed for you. Little girls do not read books like that. But Aunt Elizabeth, why not? I have a liver, haven't I? And a heart and lungs and stomach and... That will do, Emily. Not another word. Emily went to sleep unhappily. She wished she had never said a word about Esmond and she knew she would never have a chance to finish that other fascinating book. Nor had she. Dr. Burnley's bookcase was locked thereafter, 
and the doctor gruffly ordered her and Isla to keep out of his office. He was in a very bad humour about it, for he had words with Elizabeth Murray over the matter. Emily was not allowed to forget her bang. She was twitted and teased in school about it, and Aunt Elizabeth looked at it whenever she looked at Emily, and the contempt in her eyes burned Emily like a flame. Nevertheless, as the mistreated hair grew out and began to curl in soft little ringlets, Emily found consolation. The bang was tacitly permitted, and she felt that her looks were greatly improved thereby. Of course, as soon as it grew long enough, she knew Aunt Elizabeth would make her brush it back. But for the time being, she took comfort in her added beauty. The bang was just about its best when the letter came from Great Aunt Nancy. It was written to Aunt Laura. Great Aunt Nancy and Aunt Elizabeth were not overfond of each other, and in it, Great Aunt Nancy said, If you have a photograph of that child Emily, send it along. I don't want to see her. She's stupid. I know she's stupid. But I want to see what Juliet's child looks like. Also the child of that fascinating young man, Douglas Starr. He was fascinating. What fools you all were to make such a fuss about Juliet running away with him. If you and Elizabeth had both run away with somebody in your running days, it would have been better for you. This letter was not shown to Emily. Aunt Elizabeth and Aunt Laura had a long secret consultation, and then Emily was told that she was to be taken to Shrewsbury to have a picture taken for Aunt Nancy. Emily was much excited over this. She was dressed in her blue cashmere, and Aunt Laura put a point lace collar on it and hung her Venetian beads over it and new buttoned boots were got for the occasion. I'm so glad this happened while I still have my bang, thought Emily, happily. But in the photographer's dressing room, Aunt Elizabeth grimly proceeded to brush back her bang and pin it with hairpins. Oh please, Aunt Elizabeth, let me have it down, Emily begged. Just for the picture. After this, I'll brush it back. Aunt Elizabeth was inexorable. The bang was brushed back and the photograph was taken. Aunt Elizabeth saw the finished result. She was satisfied. She looks sulky, but she is neat, and there is a resemblance to the Murrays I never noticed before she told Aunt Laura. That will please Aunt Nancy. She is very clannish under all her oddishness. Emily would have liked to throw every one of the photographs in the fire. She hated them. They made her look hideous. Her face seemed to be all forehead. 
If they sent Aunt Nancy that, Aunt Nancy would think her even stupider. When Aunt Elizabeth did the photograph up in cardboard and told Emily to take it to the office, Emily already knew what she meant to do. She went straight to the garret and took out of her box the watercolour Teddy had made of her. It was just the same size as the photograph. Emily removed the latter from its wrappings, spurning it aside with her foot. That isn't me, she said. I looked sulky because I felt sulky about the bang, but I hardly ever look sulky, so it isn't fair. She wrapped Teddy's sketch up in the cardboard and then sat down and wrote a letter. Dear Great Aunt Nancy, Aunt Elizabeth had my picture taken to send you, but I don't like it because it makes me look ugly, and I am putting another picture in instead. An artist friend made it for me. It is just like me when I'm smiling and have a bang. I'm only lending it to you, not giving it, because I value it very highly. Your obedient grandniece, Emily Bird Star. P.S. I am not so stupid as you think. E.B.S. P.S. Number two. I am not stupid at all. Emily put her letter in with the picture, thereby unconsciously cheating the post office, and slipped out of the house to mail it. Once it was safely in the postbox, she drew a breath of relief. She found the walk home very enjoyable. It was a bland day in early April, and spring was looking at you round the corners. The wind woman was laughing and whistling over the wet, sweet fields. Free booting crows held conference in the treetops. Little pools of sunshine lay in the mossy hollows. The sea was a blaze of sapphire beyond the golden dunes. The maples in Lofty John's bush were talking about red buds. Everything Emily had ever read of dream and myth and legend seemed a part of the charm of that bush. She was filled to her fingertips with a rap of living. Oh, I smell spring, she cried as she danced along the brook path. Then she began to compose a poem on it. Everybody who had ever lived in the world and could string two rhymes together has written a poem about spring. It is the most berhymed subject in the world, and always will be because it is poetry incarnate itself. You can never be a real poet if you haven't made at least one poem about spring. Emily was wondering whether she should have elves dancing on the brookside by moonlight, or pixies sleeping in a bed of ferns in her poem, when something confronted her at the bend in the path, which was neither elf nor pixie but seemed odd and weird enough to belong to some tribe of little people. 
Was it a witch? Or an elderly fay of evil intentions? The bad fairy of all christening tales. I'm the by's Aunt Tom, said the appearance, seeing that Emily was too amazed to do anything but stand and stare. Oh, Emily gasped in relief. She was no longer frightened. But what a very peculiar-looking lady Perry's Aunt Tom was. Old, so old that it seemed quite impossible that she could ever have been young. A bright red hood over crone-like, fluttering grey locks. A little face seamed by a thousand fine, criss-cross wrinkles. A long nose with a knob on the end of it. Little twinkling, eager grey eyes under bristling brows. A ragged man's coat covering her from neck to feet. A basket in one hand and a black knobby stick in the other. Staring wasn't thought good breeding in my time, said Aunt Tom. Oh, said Emily again. Excuse me. How do you do? She added, with a vague grasp after her manners. Polite, and not too proud, said Aunt Tom, peering curiously at her. I've been up to the big house with a pair of socks for the boy, but twas yourself I wanted to see. Me, said Emily blankly. Yes, the boy's been talking a bit of you, and a plan came into my head. Thinks I to myself, it's no bad notion, but I'll make sure before I waste my bit of money. Emily Bird Star is your name, and Murray is your nature. If I give the boy an addiction, will you marry him when you grow up? Me, said Emily again. It seemed to be all she could say. Was she dreaming? She must be. Yes, you. You're half Murray, and it'll be a great step up for the boy. He's smart, and he'll be a rich man some day, and boss of the country. But devil a cent will I pay on him unless you promise. Aunt Elizabeth wouldn't let me, cried Emily, too frightened of this odd old body to refuse on her own account. If you've got any Murray in you, you'll do your own choosing, said Aunt Tom, thrusting her face so close to Emily's that her bushy eyebrows tickled Emily's nose. Say you'll marry the boy, and to college he goes. Emily seemed to be rendered speechless. She could think of nothing to say. Oh, if she could only wake up. She could not even run. Say it, insisted Aunt Tom, thumping her stick sharply on a stone in the path. Emily was so horrified that she might have said something, anything, to escape. But at this moment, 
Perry bounded out of the spruce copse, his face white with rage, and seized his Aunt Tom most disrespectfully by the shoulder. You go home, he said furiously. Now, boy, dear, quavered Aunt Tom deprecatingly. I was only trying to do you a good turn. I was asking her to marry ye after a bit, and... I'll do my own asking. Perry was angrier than ever. You've likely spoiled everything. Go home. Go home, I say. Aunt Tom hobbled off muttering. Then I'll know better than to waste my bit of money. No Murray, no money, me boy. When she disappeared down the brook path, Perry turned to Emily. From white, he had gone very red. Don't mind her. She's cracked, he said. Of course, when I grow up, I mean to ask you to marry me, but... I couldn't, Aunt Elizabeth. Oh, she will then. I'm going to be Premier of Canada some day. But I wouldn't want... I'm sure I wouldn't. You will when you grow up. Isla is better looking, of course, and I don't know why I like you best, but I do. Don't you ever talk to me like that again? commanded Emily, beginning to recover her dignity. Oh, I won't, not till we grow up. I'm as ashamed of it as you are, said Perry, with a sheepish grin. Only I had to say something after Aunt Tom butted in like that. I ain't to blame for it, so don't you hold it against me. But just you remember that I'm going to ask you some day. And I believe Teddy Kent is too. Emily was walking haughtily away, but she turned at this to say coolly over her shoulder, If he does, I'll marry him. If you do, I'll knock his head off, shouted Perry in a prompt rage. But Emily walked steadily on home and went to the garret to think things over. It has to be romantic, but not comfortable, was her conclusion. And that particular poem on spring was never finished. Chapter 22 Wither Grange No reply or acknowledgement came from great-aunt Nancy Priest regarding Emily's picture. Aunt Elizabeth and Aunt Laura, knowing great-aunt Nancy's ways tolerably well, were not surprised at this, but Emily felt rather worried over it. Perhaps great-aunt Nancy did not approve of what she had done or perhaps she still thought her too stupid to bother with. Emily did not like to lie under the imputation of stupidity. She wrote a scathing epistle to great-aunt Nancy on a letter bill 
in which she did not mince her opinions as to that ancient lady's knowledge of the rules of apostolary etiquette. The letter was folded up and stowed away on the little shelf under the sofa, but it served its purpose in blowing off steam, and Emily had ceased to think about the matter when a letter came from great-aunt Nancy in July. Elizabeth and Laura talked the matter over in the cookhouse, forgetful or ignorant of the fact that Emily was sitting on the kitchen doorstep just outside. Emily was imagining herself attending a drawing room of Queen Victoria, robed in white, with ostrich plumes, veil, and court train. She had just bent to kiss the Queen's hand when Aunt Elizabeth's voice shattered her dream, as a pebble thrown into a pool scatters the fairy reflection. What is your opinion, Laura? Aunt Elizabeth was saying, of letting Emily visit Aunt Nancy. Emily pricked up her ears. What was in the wind now? From her letter, she seems very anxious to have the child, said Laura. Elizabeth sniffed. A whim, a whim. You know what her whims are. Likely by the time Emily got there, she'd be quite over it and have no use for her. Yes, but on the other hand, if we don't let her go, she will be dreadfully offended and never forgive us, or Emily. Emily should have her chance. I don't know that her chance is worth much. If Aunt Nancy really has any money beyond her annuity, and that's what neither you nor I nor any living soul knows, unless it's Caroline, she'll likely leave it all to some of the priests. Leslie Priest's a favourite of hers, I understand. Aunt Nancy always liked her husband's family better than her own even though she's always slurring at them. Still, she might take a fancy to Emily. They're both so odd, they might suit each other. But you know the way she talks. She and that abominable old Caroline. Emily is too young to understand, said Aunt Laura. I understand more than you think cried Emily indignantly. Aunt Elizabeth jerked open the cookhouse door. Emily Starr, haven't you learned by this time not to listen? I wasn't listening. I thought you knew I was sitting here. I can't help my ears hearing. Why didn't you whisper? When you whisper, I know you're talking secrets and I don't try to hear them. Am I going to great-aunt Nancy's for a visit? We haven't decided, said Aunt Elizabeth coldly, and that was all the satisfaction Emily got for a week. She hardly knew herself whether she wanted to go or not. Aunt Elizabeth had begun making cheese. 
new moon was noted for its cheeses, and Emily found the whole process absorbing. From the time the rennet was put in the warm new milk, till the white curds were packed away in the hoop and put under the press in the old orchard, with the big, round, grey cheese stone to weigh it down, as it had weighed down new moon cheeses for a hundred years. And then, she and Isla and Teddy and Perry were absorbed heart and soul in playing out the Midsummer Night's Dream in Lofty John's bush, and it was very fascinating. When they entered Lofty John's bush, they went out of the realm of daylight and things known, into the realm of twilight and mystery and enchantment. Teddy had painted wonderful scenery on the old boards and pieces of sails, which Perry had got at the harbour. Isla had fashioned delightful fairy wings from tissue paper and tinsel, and Perry had made an ass's head for bottom out of an old calfskin that was very realistic. Emily had toiled happily for many weeks, copying out the different parts and adapting them to circumstances. She had cut the play after a fashion that would have harrowed Shakespeare's soul, but after all the result was quite pretty and coherent. It did not worry them that four small actors had to take six times as many parts. Emily was Titania and Hermia, and a job lot of fairies besides. Isla was Hippolyta and Helena, plus some more fairies, and the boys were anything that the dialogue required. Aunt Elizabeth knew nothing of it all. She would promptly have put a stop to the whole thing, for she thought play-acting exceedingly wicked. But Aunt Laura was privy to the plot, and Cousin Jimmy and Lofty John had already attended a moonlight rehearsal. To go away and leave all this, even for a time, would be a hard wrench. But on the other hand, Emily had a burning curiosity to see Aunt Nancy and Wither Grange, her quaint old house at Priest Pond, with the famous stone dogs on the gatepost. On the whole, she thought she would like to go, and when she saw Aunt Laura doing up her starched white petticoat, and Aunt Elizabeth grimly dusting off a small, black, nail-studded trunk in the garret, she knew, before she was told, that the visit to Priest Pond was going to come off. So she took out the letter she had written to Aunt Nancy and added an apologetic postscript. Isla chose to be disgruntled because Emily was going for a visit. In reality, Isla felt appalled at the lonely prospect of a month or more without her inseparable chum. No more jolly evenings of play-acting in Lofty John's bush. No more repugnant quarrels. Besides, Isla herself 
had never been anywhere for a visit in her whole life, and she felt sore over this fact. I wouldn't go to Withergrange for anything, said Isla. It's haunted. Tisn't. Yes, it's haunted by a ghost you can feel and hear but never see. Oh, I wouldn't be you for the world. Your great-aunt Nancy is an awful crank, and the old woman who lives with her is a witch. She'll put a spell on you. You'll pine away and die. I won't. She isn't. Is. Why she makes the stone dogs on the gatepost howl every night if anyone comes near the place. They go, roar, roar, roar. Isla was not a born elocutionist for nothing. Her roar, roar, roar was extremely gruesome. But it was daylight, and Emily was as brave as a lion in daylight. You're jealous, she said, and walked off. I'm not, you blithering centipede, Isla yelled after her. Putting on airs because your aunt has stone dogs on her gatepost. Why, I know a woman in Shrewsbury who has dogs on her posts that are ten times stonier than your aunt's. But next morning, Isla was over to bid Emily goodbye and entreated her to write every week. Emily was going to drive to Priest Pond with old Kelly. Aunt Elizabeth was to have driven her, but Aunt Elizabeth was not feeling well that day, and Aunt Laura could not leave her. Cousin Jimmy had to work at the hay. It looked as if she could not go, and this was rather serious, for Aunt Nancy had been told to expect her that day, and Aunt Nancy did not like to be disappointed. If Emily did not turn up at Priest Pond on the day set, great-aunt Nancy was quite capable of shutting the door in her face when she did appear, and tell her to go back home. Nothing less than this conviction would have induced Aunt Elizabeth to fall in with old Kelly's suggestion that Emily should ride to Priest Pond with him. His home was on the other side of it, and he was going straight there. Emily was quite delighted. She liked old Kelly, and thought that a drive on his fine red wagon would be quite an adventure. Her little black box was hoisted to the roof and tied there, and they went clicking and glittering down the old moon lane in fine style. The tins in the bowels of the wagon behind them rumbled like a young earthquake. Get up, my nag, get up, said old Kelly. Sure and I always like to drive pretty girls, and when is the wedding to be? Whose wedding? The slyness of you, your own wedding, of course. I have no intention of being married, immediately, said Emily, 
in a very good imitation of Aunt Elizabeth's tone and manner. Sure, and you're a chip of the old block. Miss Elizabeth herself wouldn't have said it better. Get up, my nag, get up. I only meant, said Emily, fearing that she had insulted old Kelly, that I am too young to be married. Aye, well, ye suit yourself. Get up, my nag, get up. The baste is tired, so we'll let him go at his own sweet will. Here's a bag of sweeties for ye. Old Kelly always treats the ladies. Come now, tell me all about him. About who? But Emily knew quite well. Your bow, of course. I haven't any bow, Mr. Kelly. I wish you wouldn't talk to me about such things. Sure and I won't if tis a sore subject. Don't ye be minding me if ye haven't got one. There'll be scans of em there after a while. And if the right one does know what's good for him, just ye come to old Kelly and get some toad ointment. Toad ointment? It sounded horrible. Emily shivered. But she would rather talk about toad ointment than bows. What is that for? It's a love charm, said old Kelly, mysteriously. Put a little smooch on his eyelids, and he's yours for life, with never a squint at another girl. It doesn't sound very nice, said Emily. How do you make it? You bile four toads alive till they're good and soft, and then mash. Oh, stop, stop implored Emily, putting her hands to her ears. I don't want to hear any more. You couldn't be so cruel. Cruel, is it? You were after eating lobsters this day that were biled alive. I don't believe it. I don't. If it's true, I'll never, never eat one again. Oh, Mr. Kelly. I thought you were a nice, kind man, but those poor toads. Girl, dear, it was only me joke, and you won't be needing toad ointment to win your lad's love. Wait you now, I've something in the till behind me for a present like you. Old Kelly fished out a box which he put into Emily's lap. She found a dainty little hairbrush in it. Look at the back of it, said old Kelly. You'll see something handsome. All the love charm you'll ever need. Emily turned it over. Her own face looked back at her from a little inset mirror, surrounded by a scroll of painted roses. Oh, Mr. Kelly, how pretty. I mean the roses and the glass, she cried. Is it really for me? Oh, thank you, thank you. Now I can have Emily in the glass whenever I want her. Why, I can carry her round with me. And you were really only in fun about the toads? Of course, 
Get up, Minag, get up. And so you're going to visit this old lady over at Priest Pond. Ever been there? No. It's full of priests. You can't throw a stone but hit one. And hit one. Hit all. They're as proud and lofty as the Murrays themselves. The only one I know is Adam Priest. The others hold too high. He's the black sheep and quite sociable. But if you want to see how the world looked on the morning after the flood, go into his barnyard on a rainy day. Look here, girl dear. Old Kelly lowered his voice mysteriously. Don't ye ever marry a priest? Why not? asked Emily, who had never thought of marrying a priest, but was immediately curious as to why she shouldn't. They're ill to marry, ill to live with. The wives die young. The old lady of the Grange fought her man out and buried him, but she had the Murray luck. I wouldn't trust it too far. The only decent priest among them is the one they call Jarback Priest, and he's too old for you. Why do they call him Jarback? One of his shoulders is a little bit higher than the other. He's got a bit of money, and doesn't be after having to work. A bookworm I'm believing. Have you got a bit of a cold iron about you? No. Why? You should have. Old Caroline Priest at the Grand is a witch if ever there was one. Why, that's what Isla said. But there are no such thing as witches. Really, Mr. Kelly. Maybe that's true, but it's better to be on the safe side. Here, put this horseshoe nail in your pocket, and don't cross her if you can help it. You don't mind if I have a bit of a smoke, do ya? Emily did not mind at all. It left her free to follow her own thoughts, which were more agreeable than old Kelly's talk of toads and witches. The road from Blairwater to Priest Pond was a very lonely one, winding along the Gulf shore, crossing fur-fringed rivers and inlets, and coming ever and anon on one of the ponds for which that part of the North Shore was noted, Blairwater, Derry Pond, Long Pond, Three Ponds, where three blue lakelets were strung together like three great sapphires held by a silver thread. And then Priest Pond, the largest of all, almost as round as Blairwater. As they drove down towards it, Emily drank the scene in with avid eyes. As soon as possible, she must write a description of it. She had packed the Jimmy Blank book in her box for just such purposes. The air seemed to be filled with opal dust over the great pond and the bowery summer homesteads around it. A western sky of smoky red was arched over the big Malvern Bay beyond. 
Little grey sails were drifting along by the fur-fringed shores. A sequestered side road, fringed thickly with young maples and birches, led down to Wither Grange. How damp and cool the air was in the hollows, and how the ferns did smell. Emily was sorry when they reached Wither Grange and climbed in between the gateposts, whereon the big stone dogs sat very stonily, looking grim enough in the twilight. The wide hall door was open, and a flood of light streamed out over the lawn. A little old woman was standing in it. Old Kelly seemed suddenly in something of a hurry, he swung Emily and her box to the ground, shook hands hastily, and whispered, Don't lose that bit of nail. Goodbye, I wish ye a cool head and a warm heart, and was off before the little old woman could reach them. So this is Emily of New Moon, Emily heard a rather shrill, cracked voice saying, she felt a thin, claw-like hand grasp hers and draw her towards the door. There were no witches, Emily knew, but she thrust her hand into her pocket and touched the horseshoe nail.